Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi folks, I would like to introduce myself. My name is Payal and I am a traveller who also loves to meet people. And I think a blend of both is where this concept of melting pot has come about. In my melting pot series, I will be talking to lots of inspiring people from different parts of the world and also from different cultures, whom I meet during all my travels. The common factor between these folks will be the desire to follow their passion and make it a way of life. So step into this melting pot and enjoy the chats. Listeners, I'm back with another episode of Melting Pot, a series of conversations, as you've now figured, some absolutely extraordinary. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Dr. Shibal Bharatiya. She's an eye surgeon, a glaucoma specialist, founder of Vision Unlimited, a nonprofit. And as I understand, Shibal is also going to soon be publishing a book. I think, in my opinion, she's a visionary and very, very inspirational. I'm really looking forward to Shibal sharing her journey with us. So, hi, Shibal. Welcome to Melting Pot. Hi, Bayal, and thank you for having me. And that introduction's a tough one to live up to. But I'm very <laughs> happy to be here in conversation with you. Great. So let's let's just talk. About, obviously, this conversation is about you. So what prompted you to become an eye surgeon? I mean, how did that happen? Was it something that you always wanted to do or you were thrown into it? Do you have like a background where you have doctors in your family? How did that come about? So in very simple words, I did not want to be a doctor, not by the longest short ever. If I was to write down 20 things I wanted to do, being a doctor would not figure in that. But I think I was aimless, did not know what to do. My father specifically was very keen that I become a doctor because it was his dream and he never got to be one. And uh, because I really didn't know what else to do when I was doing well and I enjoyed science, mathematics and physics more than anything else. This just seemed like a logical progression to take the tests and join medicine. I almost ran away from undergrad med school twice. Uh, thankfully, the, the curriculum was such that I managed to stay within the period that was required for me to finish medicine and get the required grades. But I was very sure this is not what I wanted to do until, until I discovered ophthalmology. And um, ophthalmology was also serendipity because I was looking at the lazy way out. If I have to specialize, let's study something which is uh, 
not tough. And these are two tiny eyes, both of them like each other, 30 millimeters about. So how much of the body can that be? And I thought it was the smallest single organ that I could study and still be a specialist. And then I fell in love with ophthalmology. And then I fell in love with uh, what I do for a living now, which is glaucoma. It uh, it just happened and, and I got hooked and I got hooked for life and I continue to read and write glaucoma to date. It has been forever for somebody who didn't want to study. I became somebody who was suddenly loving what she was doing. And so it's uh, so far it's an affair that has lasted. That's excellent. So, yeah, um, complete serendipity. <laughs> and you did mention to me before we started the conversation that... Um, you know, use with glaucoma because it's it's like a lifelong. Disease. Yes. So yeah, glaucoma so. is a glaucoma is a chronic disease and has no symptoms. At least most of the glaucomas that we deal with, and uh, it stays with you for life. And you forge really meaningful connections with your patients. They stay with you for as long as uh, as they are around, and and sometimes you also need to offer them end of vision care, which is very very painful, but draws from from you a lot more than you thought you were capable of giving. And um, sometimes it's a thankless job because you keep on working hard towards preserving what they have and there is really no incremental to 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 the to the quality of life of the patient. And and very often it's perceived as having done nothing because all you're doing is making sure they remain where they are. At best they remain where they are in terms of their vision and quality of life. And sometimes you lose patients, as in you lose their vision. And it can be very depressing and very frustrating in parts, but there's something extremely, extremely gratifying about being part of the of the person's journey. When the diagnosis initially is usually scary for almost everyone, you handhold them through that. And usually patients are in some asymptomatic and your treatment gives them symptoms. And to be able to deal with that and on a deeply personal level, to be able to convince the patient to stay on with therapy regardless. And then there are also the dramatic surgeries that you sometimes need to do. Well, very rarely will some will you have uh, done something to recover a patient's vision. It is uh, an extremely, extremely gratifying journey to be on with another human being, to be able to speak with them of a future which may not be certain, and yet convince them to be with you with interventions which make their life worse right now, but may definitely have a positive impact on the quality of their life thereafter. It is, in a lot of ways, a lot more a lot more to do with empathy and conversation than clinical expertise in so many ways. Of course, uh, clinical expertise is the bottom line. You can't circumvent that. But there is a definite doctor-patient relationship that is for keeps. And I think that's what um, what attracted me most to the discipline, apart from the fact that it was pure physics and numbers. So, yeah, mm. that's, uh, that's what's so, so beautiful about it. Is there a lot of uh, research on at the moment? Uh, to oh, yes. oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Glaucoma is, um, is, the most, is the most important cause of blindness, which is irreversible the world over. And uh, apart from age-related macular degeneration, which is the other thrust area, these are both chronic diseases where the damage to vision is irreversible because we can, when you have a cataract, perform a surgery and your vision comes back. But with glaucoma, what you lose never gets back. So there's, it, there's a tremendous amount of research that's going on. But sadly, 
we are still waiting for that one big breakthrough where we'll say that, yes, the vision loss of glaucoma can be recovered. For now, all that we know we can do is to try and prevent or slow the loss of vision to such an extent that it doesn't impact your quality of life in the long run. Um, so it's a, it's a very tightrope walk between deciding uh, the risks of therapy against the benefits of it because the benefits are not in real time. You don't see them right now. They're usually in the longer run. So, which is why glaucoma requires the best minds right now to be working very hard and finding a cure. I don't know if we're at the brink of finding one. At least from what I read, we no longer we really aren't. But there is hope. There is hope, and and one bright, fine morning, I know we'll all read up in the papers that we have a cure. So, which part of the world is the research at its sort of, you know, where it's very, very um, extensive? So everywhere, everywhere, because all of us are struggling with the same burden of disease, all ophthalmologists across the globe. Uh, Southeast Asia has a particular kind of glaucoma called angle closure glaucoma, which, which progresses faster, but thankfully also has an intervention that can prevent damage if you detect it early on in disease. It's a one-stop shot with a laser. So Southeast Asia, including India, would focus more on this kind of glaucoma, while Europe and Americas would focus more on uh, more on the open angle variant, which is uh, which is a more gentler, less aggressive form of glaucoma. Uh, the Africas would be Africa would be dealing with with more and more of of a public health concern in terms of healthcare access more than anything else. So research is on in every part of the globe because all of us are struggling with the same disease process. So, but there isn't a particular thrust area that this particular institute is the place to be in for glaucoma research right now. Um, there are multiple centers across the globe, and most of them are doing tremendous, tremendous work. Okay, that's that's interesting. Let's hope that you know sooner than later someone is able to find a cure for it. Um, all eye surgeons, all eye surgeons across the globe, join you in that prayer. It is something <laughs> all of us battle every day. Yeah, I can I can imagine that. Yeah, because I think eyes are so I would say the most important organ of your of your body, because if you don't see, I mean, yeah, okay, your senses get heightened, uh, your other senses get heightened. So, you know, then you're able to balance that. But I mean, I can't even imagine um, not being able to see the beautiful colors and you know, look at nature and and observe. And I mean, it's it's just something which I can't even comprehend. But uh, yeah, so I completely understand uh, where you're coming from when, you know, you say that the relationship that you develop with your patients who have glaucoma becomes like a lifelong thing, you know, because you help them kind of balance their lives, their expectations and and all of that. So yeah, so it's it's amazing. It's really incredible. Tell me about Vision Unlimited. So ah, um, my I have, other baby. Your other baby. What's the <laughs> vision behind Vision Unlimited? So Vision Unlimited was my salvation when I was going through a personal mess. Um, I came back from my studies in Geneva and I came back to a personal mess that I was finding very difficult to negotiate. Even though I had come back to a city I was born in, um, I was lost. Um, I was coming to terms with the fact that my son would not be with me over the weekends because he would spend that time with his father and the days would loom ahead absolutely empty and 
and I, I don't know if I would call that clinical depression now because it wasn't diagnosed then, but in hindsight, I wasn't the happiest. And, uh, and so the, the most logical thing to do at that point was to reach out to, for some reason, not friends, uh, but to those who didn't have so much. And I reached out to one of the poorest communities in Old Delhi, where women were neglected uh, in terms of their healthcare access and, and started doing eye checks for them. And to my absolute frustration and almost anger, I realized that even though it was a bunch of us girls going in there with all our equipment and offering free eye checks, nobody would find the time to come to us. And uh, it took it took a while for us to understand that the how patriarchy works and how it influences everything, all your choices, including those you make for healthcare access and definitely for eye care access, because there's no felt need for wearing glasses. And if you were to be given glasses, there would be this um, this uh, stigma attached to it as to almost stigma, actually, that there is no reason for me to wear glasses. I don't look pretty enough with them. And, and glasses really are really low-hanging fruit when it comes to taking care of uh, of blindness, at least in this part of the world. If you were to just prescribe glasses, refractive errors are the most common cause of blindness in our country, in India. So as part of that, what I started to do was I started to help them cook. I was like, okay, I'm gonna have cooking lessons and the easiest thing to teach was cake. And since most of them did not have access to an oven, I looked up YouTube videos and learned how to bake a cake using, uh, using a pressure cooker, which almost every Indian household has. And they would come to me so that I could give them cooking lessons. And for that, and for some reason, that was a perfectly acceptable use of their time, while an eye check wasn't. So once I started doing these cake baking lessons for them, they would come and I'd say, now stay so we can check your eyes as well. And slowly and gradually, we started, you know, the bond with the community starts to happen. And they started becoming more and more like family. And, and some of them would speak with me of their own trials and tribulations and their troubles and also their joys, as would I. Some of them were younger than I was, some of them were older. We found, and you know, it's very difficult to imagine because living in the antiseptic, absolutely happy wells that we come from, that we would have so much in common with someone who was having a tough time making two, two meals a day. But we did have so much in common, and that meant that we gradually developed relationships that went beyond just getting them glasses or helping them with their eye health. And, and we started talking of education, literacy, about vocational training, about financial independence. So many of them were single moms who, like me, were struggling to find a space in their world. Uh, I was privileged because I had, you know, everything. I had a supportive family, I had a supportive network of friends, I had money, I had education. But our problems at the end of the day were the same. We were all battling the same same demons, the same loneliness. And, and they became an extended family to whom I could relate to very easily. And gradually, very gradually, uh, the problems of the community somehow started feeling like they were mine. And we started looking for small solutions. And those weren't big solutions ever because there was never enough time or enough money. And I was too young and too absorbed in being a mother to a five-year-old for me to do anything big or dramatic. But whatever we did, you could see the impact right on. And it was extremely gratifying. And that is when, you know, you understand the selfishness of giving. Because when you give of yourself or of your time or of your person or your energy, what you receive is far more than what you've given. And that is what kept me alive. And it was the kindness of absolute strangers that helped me find my feet. 
that helped me understand that I wanted to be a better person that I had been all my life. And it's being an ongoing relationship with that community and with so many more. That's how it became an unlimited vision. So even though most of what I do starts off with iHealth, because that is my core competence, we we have now been extremely agile and efficient in responding to any disaster that's come our way in the last four years or five. We were first responders for the Kerala floods at one point in time, and I'm so proud of saying this. They sent in a requisition saying we need some medicines, and the next morning everything was on an aircraft. We're extremely proud that at one particular point in time, all of the insulin in Trivandrum, the capital of Kerala, which was underwater, uh, went from uh, from us. We actually went and almost flirted with a couple of airline pilots so they would carry the insulin for us because it requires the cold chain to be maintained. We were very, very efficient in in doing what we thought was required at any given point of time. We also have continuous food bank running because I have this crazy relationship with food. I've battled anorexia in the past and I eat too much now. Between the two extremes, I realized that food was important. So we run a food bank through the year. And what the most important learning from the food bank has been the fact that people say no when they are done. So we usually offer three months of support to any family that is going through a crisis. And very often somebody will say after two months or maybe even after one that now we are back on our feet. So can you just pass this on to somebody else? And uh, yeah, because, you know, uh, we often associate poverty with with a lack of uh, for lack of a better word, morals, mm, where poverty is yeah. equated with uh, with stripping of dignity and stripping of what are called higher mental functions by way of self-respect, by way of empathy. And that's something we've learned that, um, no, poverty is not the equivalent of vice. Uh, human beings are the same. It's just that their circumstances sometimes mean that they need a hand up. And the minute they can, you know, find their feet, they're happy to help others. And it's it's universal. It's something I've seen across continents, across geographies, across politics. And it is extremely gratifying to know that. So the food bank that way has been beautiful to, to be with. We also run a small vocational training school in Patna, which is home for me, where we teach 37 girls tailoring and 22 girls learn how to be beauticians. And uh, and hopefully they'll all be independent and and smart young ladies once they, you know, when they go out into the world and practice their trade. Um, So that's what Vision Unlimited did and does. And and then uh, the COVID-19 pandemic meant that that we had to step up operations and be bigger than we had ever imagined we would be. So just about a month in, when reports from China were coming in and we could see it was evolving, we decided it was time for us to, to become official. So we registered in February 2020. Before that, Vision Unlimited was a Facebook page and and a hope in my heart. We okay. registered ourselves as a trust in February 2020 so our friends and family could help us out. Uh, we raise all our funds on Facebook and it's only word of mouth. It's people who see what we're doing and help us because we put out an ask every time. And uh, it's incredible that that we've reached out to more than 10,000 families. You're listening to a fusion of stories recounted for the first time ever by some fascinating people from across the globe with me, Payal, on this very unique and special podcast series, Melting Pot. During this pandemic and made sure that they have enough food to last them while during the lockdowns, where, uh, which was a crisis and a half. 
and we were so also you first provide, you provide them with grains is it Yes, so we try and provide them with everything which would constitute a basic meal of dal and chawal. So dal is lentils and rice. Uh, we can't provide them vegetables, but we make sure they have all the all the spices they need and salt and oil as well. So it's a completely functional, basic Russian kit that lasts them about three weeks, and we do this every one month, presuming that they'll be able to take care of themselves for the one week with whatever resources they can handle. We've also we've also touched about eight thousand families, got them detergent and soap because it was so important during the pandemic to keep washing your hands. And because the lockdown was so sudden in India, there was four hours notice, and um, and a lot of our population has migrated from rural India to urban India. and they were suddenly without a job and they were scared there wasn't enough food on the streets there was a reverse migration that happened you must have read off it where people just left their homes and started walking to wherever they were thousands of kilometers away and um, and if you've seen the horrible and the most heartrending pictures that came out of people walking without shoes and their feet absolutely absolutely macerated in the hot 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 indian summer imagine walking in 45 degrees with no shoes and on a cold tar road uh, so we were extremely effective and i'm so grateful so so grateful that we could do this but we were the first people who moved to the highways on nh24 and 8 and 4 with with lots of slippers for everyone with footwear and food which was ready to eat biscuits and um, and water and uh, oral rehydration solutions and and some lemonade because that was all the respite we could offer them it was so hot we couldn't carry of cooked meal because it would spoil in the heat mm. and um, yeah it was uh, i don't know how to put it byel there has to be a better way of saying this than i'm saying it but it was the most painful episode i can think of in this country's history and we've seen enough in this country we've seen strife we've seen malnutrition we've seen hunger we've seen death we've seen uh, we've seen cyclones we've seen floods but this was a crisis which was uh, which was beyond explanation and it for some strange reason it was not anticipated because I think we didn't we forgot how important it is to be home when things are wrong and that's the only thing that I I can imagine through this the fact is when things go wrong all you can think of is going home and that is what they were doing and we didn't anticipate that response as a nation which is why we saw so much which it was just very painful and extremely unnecessary mm-hmm. but vision unlimited was we are we are so privileged to have been part of the first response because we look back and 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 i as i say this i'm struggling for words because you know there are things that i will never unsee and 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 those flash in front of my eyes when i talk of it but to be to be able to give someone who's been walking barefoot a pair of slippers and maybe a a, a small bottle of water and a biscuit I can't imagine anything more beautiful and I can't imagine anything more pathetic than the gratitude that we were at the receiving end of for someone to be grateful for what is their right and uh, yeah so yeah so that is vision unlimited That's we crazy. hope I know I know I know this is just again I oh while this is not how I wanted this to be I wanted this to be a hopeful happy conversation but Yeah, but that's uh, how it was. The fact that you were able 
to, you know, in your, I mean, that's what was needed, right? Everyone who was able to support yes. in whatever way possible, you know, I think is, is incredible. And to be able to, if, if by doing that, you were able to save lives, you were able to, you know, you touch were able lives. to also yes. touch lives, give them hope that, yes, you know, uh, we can, we, we do have people around us who, despite our conditions, who will be able to, you know, who are there to support us, who are thinking yes. of us. I mean, I think that's, um, that's an incredible i mean obviously you know it for you if you had been able to touch everyone's life of course that you know that would have been just just perfect yeah just perfect yeah but you know so i think it's something to be really really grateful for and i'm sure all those people will never forget this kindness and and that's that's the most important thing so yeah so that's incredible you know i'm i'm happy that you shared this part of your your journey with the listeners and with me when you put it like that it sounds really nice, but otherwise, <laughs> it seems like a black hole that you can't seem to step out of. We also managed to send out 14 buses for them. So we put them into buses and said, don't walk, wait till we organize it. Some of them listened, some of them didn't. And mm. now when they are trying to come back here, because there is no food in the villages either, and even though it's you know no longer a lockdown, the disease is very much there. So they're extremely scared. And we're trying to set up a school now for upskilling most of our construction workers and the poorest of the poor, the rag pickers. Mm. Uh, the hierarchy here is, is the social hierarchy is so rigid because it's not just financial and economic. It's also based on this awful system called the caste system where untouchability is still rampant. So most of our work now is focusing increasingly, apart from the COVID response and food security, on upskilling people who are rag pickers. So they just might move from manual scavenging. And that's something you in Singapore can't imagine happens every day, where people actually wear a raincoat-like thing and, and step into a manhole to clean the sewers mm -hmm. with their bare hands, hoping to move them away from there starting and we've just started to talk about a school that we'll set up for two of these localities communities that we have adopted and uh, yeah so that's vision unlimited for now wow that's amazing good luck with that thank uh, you thank I you i wanted also to talk to you about this book that i understand you're uh, you're going to yes. be publishing soon yes uh, so tell my listeners a little bit about that so my book, oh, I'm so happy about it. It was supposed to be out in May 2020, but the pub publishers, HarperCollins, thought it made more sense to wait a bit because of the lockdown. And I could only agree. So the most interesting part of the book is how it got written. One fine day, I was telling my son something about what happened when I was a kid. And, uh, and I couldn't remember the exact details. And the cousins have a WhatsApp group. So I wrote on the group saying, does anybody remember what this person did that particular day? And there are five of us there. And everybody came up with stories saying, this happened and no, that happened. And I was like, no, that's not how it happened. And then it became a series of conversations about growing up. And uh, I've I mean, I would contribute most of it, I suppose. And then one fine day, my cousin sister, Sheba, she's two years elder than I, um, she told me, that reads like a book. Have you tried and looked back at the chats? And I was like, no, I haven't, but I should. And I did. And 
it did read like a book. And so I said, has anybody saved it up? Because I didn't have all of the chats saved. And thankfully, both my brother and my cousins had it saved up. And they sent it across to me. And I cleaned it up. And uh, it read like a book. And I asked Harper Collins if it read like a book. And they thought it read like a book. So Bena's Summer is a story that was written on WhatsApp entirely between patients, between uh, errands, sometimes on red lights. But that's how it was. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's, it's, isn't that a fascinating way to write a book? Yeah. Uh, so it's the story, it's a very happy story of a eight-year-old girl in a bit. Um, it's just very, very autobiographical. I guess first novels always are. It is, it's about a summer vacation that I spent at my nani's house, my maternal grandmother's, in a small city called Sultanpur in Uttar Pradesh, and in Gaya, which is where my daddy, my father's mother, used to live. And it's a very happy girl, and I was a very happy child, a kid, and, and uh, loved jalebis and mangoes and paratas and was pampered silly because I was the, you know, the oldest grandchild and phenomenally loved. So it's the happiest book. It's about kindness. It's about friendship. It's about um, all that is right in, in growing up in small town India in the 80s. It was a beautiful, beautiful time. And I don't say it only because of nostalgia, because I even if I retain a bit of objectivity, it was a wonderful time to grow up in India. Things were, were simpler than they are. And But they were also a lot more textured in terms of context, and a lot was changing. So in the background of the innocent fun that children have in summer vacations, something really nasty hit home. Communalism is something the country has battled, especially the Hindu-Muslim strife, since forever. And um, we, the cousins and I, were caught in, in two communal riots within the span of one summer vacation. So this story also deals with, uh, with loss and loss of innocence and how children process uh, violence and how disorienting it can be and uh, how radiant friendships are through the darkest, darkest times of our lives. So it's, it's a happy book. It's a book that I wrote for anybody who reads and who's above, I think, 10 years old or so, because it's a very simply written book, because the, the cousins are morons. If I used fancy language, they wouldn't get it. <laughs> That's the other thing I understood from reading my books again. But you don't talk, you know, not really. With my cousins, anything which has more than three syllables is, is incomprehensible. So they wouldn't know what incomprehensible means. So the, so the average... <laughs> no, really. I was just thinking as to why it, does the book read so simply. I know because it was written for the cousins, all of whom are now in their 40s and just as horrible as they were when they were younger. So yeah, Bena's summer. It's uh, one summer in Benazir's life. Wow. That's something I'm going to look forward to and definitely. Oh, I must have you read it. Yeah. Where did, where did you grow up? Um, well, all over the place. All over the place. <laughs> so, but any small town in there? No. Oh, so you missed out on that bit. I missed out on that bit. Yeah, I did. <laughs> no, but I'm sure you had other things. But we had horrible things to do. We were perpetually in trouble. No, perpetually. Having said that, my mm -hmm. grand, I, I do remember, I mean, you know, when we did live in India, uh, because it was like in and out and, you know, but the times mm -hmm. of growing up, the few years that I did live in India, I would go to a small town to visit my grandparents along mm -hmm. with my brother and, um, you know, a couple of my, my cousins. And so, you know, I, I 
I mean, I can, they were always very short, um, the trips, but mm -hmm. I, I don't remember all the fun things that we did and how whatever you wanted, you know, would arrive at the house. You didn't really have, and my grandfather yes. in this and mansion which in fact now is uh, and uh, it, it's a charitable trust it's a hospital oh how wonderful yeah and how wonderful uh, you mentioned a place called sultanpur right yes yeah so my grandparents lived in a place called johnpur oh which, which is not far yeah which, which is was not far every time that i would we would drive from, I don't know, Allahabad to... Or Lucknow, yes. Or Lucknow, we would... That's how, you know, it's it's stuck in my head when you mentioned Sultanpur. So I have also experienced it, but in obviously not as much as you have, probably. Yes. So, yeah. So, I no, so the one time that we were traveling from Lucknow to Patna to go back home to where I was growing up, we actually uh, got off on Jaunpur instead of Sultanpur. Oh, so I remember Jaunpur so well because we were suddenly in a place and we didn't know why we were there. I think I must have been eight and my father was, was as confused because this is not where we were supposed to get off, is it? But uh, that is where we got off. So yeah, we had an interesting life and very interesting parents also. They just let us be. Hmm. They just let us be unlike the helicopter mom that I, my son says I am. He's 14 and uh, now our conversation is limited to grunts and the occasional... Yes, but, uh, yeah, but it was different when it was my parents. Yeah, yeah I guess, yeah. Um, you know, you ha times have changed. Uh, Very and much. You just have to adapt and be, you know, you need to be the kind of parent that can also be a friend. So you have to start to think a little differently as well as a parent. Anyway. Did I tell you my cigarettes and sugar story, which my son keeps telling me? Did I, did I speak of this to you? Oh, no, you haven't. I haven't. Oh, I must tell you the story. So all of my stories of my childhood, the backdrop is cigarettes because my dad was a chain smoker and he thought it was perfectly fine to smoke in our faces. And uh, the other day, I was speaking to my son of something and, and how comforting, I'm not a smoker, but how comforting the smell of cigarettes is to me today because it smells like home to me. And when I miss my dad very much, I think I would go sit next to some to an ashtray or something. <laughs> and my son said, do you realize how it would be a criminal offense today if a father was to sm smoke in front of their children. And I was telling him, that's how your children are going to react if you tell them Amma gives you sugar or Amma gives you cake because that's refined flour and refined sugar, which is as damaging as, cigarette, <laughs> as a cigarette could have been. And, you know, that's how dramatic parenting, you know, the, the change in the way we parent has been. Yeah. Uh, for me to, to be able to question my parents, um, that happened after teenage uh, and that also happened to us the latter part of my teenage when I was no longer living at home. But before that, what they said was gospel. It was uh, it was the truth. It was to be done. You didn't question it. And I don't know if that's how it was in your home. But uh, it wasn't there wasn't a, it wasn't like it was martial law, but it was just the, the thing to do. It was just accepted. But now children question 
every single thing and you'd have a five-year-old with an opinion I guess yeah yeah that's true no I mean I, I for me my growing up was sort of different from yours in that sense because mm-hmm. um my parents um the way they you know my brother and I were given a free hand we could you know we could think independently for ourselves and we would ask them for advice they would advise us but hmm. they always said that it's up to you to take our advice or not if you don't and you go ahead with your decision and if it's the wrong decision you learn from it um hmm. and the next time you you'll know not to do it so that's the kind of thinking that they had um and also i think you know because we lived away you know my yes husband, i which is what i was going to say it's because you didn't spend enough time in jonpur fire no no <laughs> because i would have an opinion otherwise born in in london and lived in you know different parts of the world and so right. no john just the difference going... if there was jonpur even the neighbors <laughs> would decide what you're allowed to think <laughs> goodness it is ridiculous how everyone has an opinion about your life and what you're wearing and how your hair should look everyone except you and it's true even today even today it is true i am 45 years old but it is true yeah, yeah but it's great fun too it has its moments there are days when you want to tear your hair out there are days when you enjoy it there are days when you don't and there are days when you just accept it for what it is <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure your cousins were nicer yeah, than mine too. Been... <laughs> yeah, well they were two boys. They were two boys. Um and my brother. So I I'm, you know, I I was the only girl and so obviously I was pampered and the boys mm. were each other. <laughs> But yeah. anyway, I, I have lots a, of stories. I was a terror. I oh. was a terror. I was a horrible <laughs> horrible child, but it was good being me when I was growing up. Gosh, anyways, this has been really a fun conversation. Thank you so much, Shibu, <laughs> for your you, time. And yeah, then I look forward to the book and you know, good luck with whatever you're you've set out to do with Vision Unlimited. You know, I'm really going to follow your journey. So, take care and I'll chat with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pile. It was wonderful to speak with you too. Bye-bye. Bye. A very successful ophthalmologist by profession, a loving mother, a soon-to-be author, and someone who is on a mission to change the world. That is Shibul's life journey and it is absolutely fascinating. She's so honest and open about herself. The way she talks about empathy for her patients clearly reflects on her as a person. And I can completely understand the natural progression in setting up Vision Unlimited. Hope you've enjoyed listening to Shibul. Stay tuned for more inspiring stories with me Pyle on Melting Pot. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.